0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? We are about to listen to a classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally published March 25th, 2015. It is called Ice Core Drilling. Pretty cool, if you ask me. Enjoy
1: I like to think about ancient times. Uh-huh. So when I come on other shows, I like to be able to look to the past sometimes. So, mm-hmm. Jonathan, I want to talk to you about Lake Vostok.
0: All right. So what is Lake Vostok?
1: You've never heard of it?
0: Uh, I, I know Lake Lanier. Is it near Lake Lanier?
1: It's pretty close. No, it's a lake in Antarctica. Oh, wow. But it's not just any kind of lake. It's a subglacial lake. The biggest one in the world, actually. So it is a lake that is under a glacier, a giant sheet of ice, and that glacier is really thick. I've seen estimates from about two miles thick to about 4,000 meters of glacial ice over the lake, which would be like two and a half miles. I guess there are probably different segments where the ice is at different thickness. Sure. Sure. And it's been buried in ice for millions of years. All right. So in recent decades, scientists have been drilling samples of the ice above this lake to study what's down there. Um, and whenever I picture this lake in my mind, this lake buried under ancient ice, it makes me think of Gollum's Lake under the mountain in The Hobbit.
0: Right, in the Misty Mountains, yeah.
1: Misty Mountains. So what, did the lake have a name, or was it just where the, uh, the it did, fishy, I, yummy fishes I, were?
0: I don't think it had a specific name. If it did, it would have been a goblin name. So it would be you know, unpronounceable for the mere mortal that I am.
1: Oh, I assume you speak goblin. Well, I know
0: Grishnak is fire. That's, that's <laughs> the only thing I can... I can rattle off off the top of my head.
1: Well anyway, when scientists drill down into this deep, deep Antarctic golem lake below the ice, one of the craziest things is that they've found DNA and evidence of microbial life wow. below that ice. And I remember in 2013, there were stories about how some ice samples indicated there might even be more complex life, like fish and arthropods in that water. Um, Now, I know that was highly controversial at the time. I just recently looked it up again to see if there there were any developments on that. I found a piece of coverage from Nature News at the time throwing some serious doubts on the on the live fish and arthropods claim. Mm. So that's, I'm sure, not all that widely accepted. But just the idea of it is so cool, that you have this completely sealed off ancient alien life in this lake below a mountain of ice. And things like that make me think about deep time, like how ice is a cross-section of geological time right. on Earth.
0: Right. Like, like, there is layer upon layer of evidence of what has happened in the past. Yeah. And and just a, in case people are curious, like, how could a subglacial lake remain? Why would you call that a lake? Why would that not just be another part of the glacier? Why wouldn't that just be ice? Geothermal heat actually counteracts the freezing action of the ice above it le- allowing the lake to remain liquid. Oh, I actually didn't know why
1: it was liquid. Oh
0: yeah, it's yeah. because of geothermal uh, geothermal vents that continue to keep the temperature of the lake above freezing. Oh, that's cool. So, uh yeah, that's why uh there can be a lake, a subglacial lake because otherwise you would say like, well wait a minute, how could it still remain frozen? How could it remain unfrozen unless there were some other chemicals in the lake that would uh, uh, lower its freezing point below that of water.
1: Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, okay. You you might be wondering. Wait a minute. What does this have to do with technology? Well, we're getting get there in just a second. Yep. So, when you think about glaciers, I guess at the polar regions, how do things like that form? Well, It's actually a pretty simple process. Mm-hmm. Every year it snows. Yeah. It'll it'll snow and. Uh, you get heavier snows in the winter and lighter snows in the summer. Right, but in some places in the world, unlike probably wherever you live, if it snows around your house or your yard, eventually that snow melts.
0: Right, right. You get to a point where the season's warm, the snow starts to uh, to to melt away, and then eventually you have no more snow. But there are some regions where. Either the snow accumulation is so great that it never completely melts, or the temperature never rises above freezing, and therefore it just continues to
1: accumulate. So every season you get a new layer of snow. Right. What happens when a new layer of snow goes on top of the old layer of snow? Well, eventually it gets kind of heavy.
0: Yeah, it compresses into the point where the lower layers of snow are compressed into ice. Yeah. So then you get layers of ice, and if you were able to look at these layers of ice collectively, you could start to draw some conclusions about what had happened the years when that snow first accumulated. And this is what leads us to the practice of drilling down into ice sheets and glaciers to retrieve samples, to kind of get a look back into the geological past of the Earth.
1: Yeah, exactly. So ice core drilling is a way of getting... At this cross section of geological time that we can see in the ice layers of, of glaciers. Right. And a lot of it's going to be, you know, in places like Greenland or in Antarctica. Yeah, those are the two, uh, chief sites for ice core drilling. Where people have to come up with these huge vertical samples of ice that might be miles thick. Right. And what I wanted to know was, how on earth do they do that? It can't be all that easy, can it? It is, it's, well, easy, it is not. Simple, it is. Simpler so, than I would have expected, actually. It is, it is a simple method
0: in the sense that it doesn't require tons of complex uh, machinery or, or techniques, but it is not easy to do because it is uh, difficult to reach to access the areas and uh, the methodology can often require people to essentially live on an ice sheet for a very – for, you know, like
1: like a month at a time. Right, depending on how deep they want to drill.
0: Right. So uh, within each of those layers of, of snow that have turned into ice, there are records of things of the past. Like mm-hmm. the, the – you know, ice can trap chemicals, for example. Uh, precipitation can trap chemicals. And as that precipitation – in this case, snow – hits the ground then you have a record of what the chemical composition was at that given time and uh, then other layers will pack on top of it and they will have their own kind of you know unique chemical fingerprint if you will
1: right, right? so the layers don't just show you a cross section of time each layer has data sure. on the time it comes from it so might even have would...
0: like Ash from a
1: volcanic eruption. You can see chemical data like you were just talking about, the concentrations of different gases in the atmosphere that become dissolved in little bubbles in these layers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you can see uh, exactly ash from volcanic eruptions. You can even discern things about the local weather patterns where the glacier was at certain times in the past.
0: We'll be back with more about ice core drilling in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. Another thing that I think is kind of cool with the, uh, the volcanic ash layers is that it lets you compare one sample against another sample that was gathered somewhere else, and not necessarily just in ice. There are other core uh, coring methods like that, going through uh, peat bogs, for example. And if you find a layer of ash that corresponds to another layer of ash in a completely different sample, you can say, oh, well, these both came from that same eruption. That allows us to, to chorus, correlate these two dates together by the chemical composition of the ash in the two layers, because the chemical composition is going to be unique each eruption. So that way you can actually start to build a global view of what had happened during any given, you know, uh, Year or span of years in Earth's past, which is really interesting. I think.
1: Yeah, it's way cooler and more full of creepy ancient power than you would have imagined <laughs> ice drilling to be. But I want to hear about the drilling itself. How do they get these cores out of the glacier?
0: Okay, well there are two basic categories of drills, and then there are are uh, you know different examples of each category. Mm-hmm. So the first big one are mechanical drills. Now these are drills that. Drilled down into the ice through mechanical
1: action, essentially rotating. Right. But normally when you think of a drill that's making a hole in something, you are not removing any section of that substrate intact. Right. You're just like making I'm, a hole. Yeah. In I'm, something. I'm drilling in the wall. Well, it's going to be this sort of like, you know, cylindrical object that's got – screw thread kind of things on the outside to move the shavings out of the hole as right. it goes deeper in. It's just but a solid not, shaft. Yeah, it's not going to give you a cross section of the wood. Right. So how do you get that?
0: So in order to do that, you have to have a drill bit that is an actual hollow cylinder, right? The the middle of this, instead of it being a solid shaft, it's a cylinder that has cutting teeth on one end of it mm-hmm. so that when it rotates, it creates this, uh the, the, the actual uh, drill itself rotates around a column of ice. It creates a column of ice, cuts away so that you know the center of the drill bit starts to accumulate this ice. It goes straight down until you get to the length of the drill itself. Mm-hmm. And obviously then you can't go any further because – you hit the cap like the top of the the drill and that's where you would have to stop and try and retrieve the ice that you've just drilled.
1: Right. So you might think about it kind of like this. Imagine like a tin can or like a pipe. Yeah. And then the lip of that pipe is sort of like a circular saw blade. Yeah. Uh it's got the but the the blade is parallel to the length of the pipe obviously right. so it can screw down in. Right.
0: And it's also uh the teeth are usually adjustable like you can either uh, uh, extend them or attract them a little bit, depending upon the nature of the ice that you're cutting into. So for example, uh, if they are, if the, if the teeth are retracted too far, it's going to be really hard to get purchase on the ice. It's going to kind of skitter around mm-hmm. anyone who's had any experience with ice knows it's slippery. And so you'd have to have the teeth be a little bit longer. If they're too long, then they're going to get, uh, caught in the ice so it'll make it more difficult to turn the the drill and drill down into the ice so you have to find that that sweet spot and that's usually why the the teeth are adjustable so that you can uh, make it the the perfect length for whatever conditions you encounter you when you turn the drill the proper way it cuts into the ice and it and it pulls in that cylinder like we were talking about
1: now there's also going to be some waste product from this drilling, in yeah. there?
0: Yeah. Chips of ice, obviously, are going to accumulate. So uh, often these drills have treads on the outside of them, which will pu- push uh, chips up to the surface. Some of them have chambers that will hold chips to keep it away from the ice core sample. Because obviously, if you're looking at, at creating a sample for you to study in the lab, you don't want to end up mixing that material all up because then you don't have an accurate representation of what happened over any given length of time, right? Mm. You've you've corrupted your sample. So most of these have a method of funneling chips up into a chamber. Uh and you know the the simplest of these mechanical drills are the hand powered augers. You actually move these by hand. It it, it looks like a um Kind of like a, a very long can, right? And the top of it has like a, a T-junction handle. and, and you, Like
1: in cartoons when people have a dynamite box and they push it and right. a handle like that. Or like a jackhammer, you know, yeah, that kind yeah. of
0: thing. And Except, of course, instead of it going up and down, you're twisting this in order to create the rotational force. that is translated into lateral force because the drill is kind of like a the inversion of a screw, right? Yeah. So you're, you're drilling down that way. And, uh, you might think, well, you were talking earlier about how some of the, um, the core samples we look at are, are kilometers long. How could you possibly get a sample that's that long using a hand auger? Well, first of all, you can. <laughs> but secondly, uh, when we talk about these core samples, yeah, the entire sample might be several kilometers long, but that's made up of segments. So depending upon the drill you're using, your segments may be between one and six meters long. Yeah. Right. So, uh, that's between like, uh, you know, around three feet to around 20 feet long, roughly. Um, and in order for you to create a full, uh, uh, core sample, then what you would have to do is lower the drill back down into the bore hole that you've started until it reaches the bottom and you have to use extenders to come up out of the borehole so you
1: can continue to drill downward. That sounds like uh you'd pretty quickly reach a sort of maximum depth for these hand operated versions.
0: You absolutely do. Yeah, because eventually you're not going to you're, the the amount of, of rotational force you'll have to create to rotate the entire thing, the the drill and all the extenders will exceed the strength and flexibility of that device. So you can't You can't uh, indefinitely use a hand auger.
1: It would also just seem to be that that combined with whatever you have to hang it on to get it deeper and deeper would get really heavy. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, you keep in mind, like, you're talking about lifting up six meters of ice. Uh, And, of course, the diameter of this depends upon the drill, too, right? The The drill's diameter will determine the diameter of the core sample. But you're still talking about lifting all that ice, which is heavy lifting the drill itself, which is heavy, lifting all the extenders, which are heavy. So eventually you get to a point where, you know, you're just not going to have the the integrity to keep that all together, which is when you need to look at possibly switching to something else. So your typical hand augers can go pretty darn deep. I mean, we're talking 20 to 30 meters. That's like 66 to 98 feet
1: that's deeper than I would have expected.
0: Yeah, me too. And, and according to some of the things I read, it's more like 40 meters is the maximum. 20 to 30 tends to be what people limit themselves to. Mm-hmm. But I think the record was somewhere around 40 meters. So it's even further than that. Um, so what do you do when you reach that, that limit where you can't use the hand augers anymore? Well, that's when you try try Power drill. Use, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. You're using the electromechanical drills. Uh, these are suspended on a cable. So instead of it having like a physical, um, turning mechanism that extends all the way up to the surface, they're, they, they are actually suspended by cable, lowered into a borehole. And they consist typically of two barrels. You have an external barrel that remains, uh, motionless. It, it is, it does not turn. All right. So the external barrel is, uh, uh, just a stationary, holding device. Then the inner barrel is the one that can rotate. All right. So the cable that suspends an electromechanical drill, the cable doesn't move at all either. It's just there to supply the suspension mechanism and the power. So Mm -hmm. it's it's got the power lines that go down to power the drill. The inner barrel will rotate uh, in the proper direction to continue drilling down. And the inner barrel also has treads on the external side
1: of it. Right. So those are going to be like the threads on your, your drill bit that are getting the shavings out of the wall. In this exactly. case, they're transporting the ice chips up along the length of the drill.
0: That's right. And so you would, uh, use this the same way you would use your hand auger, except of course, in this case, it's an electrical, uh, uh, action, electromechanical action that is causing it. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a little bit easier on the people who are operating it. They just have to make sure that they're lowering it pop, uh, properly and that it's at the uh, correct depth, all of that kind of stuff, and, and that the teeth are at the right length. It's just like the hand augers. You've got to make sure that uh, those those uh, teeth are, are proper so that they can cut into the material, the ice, properly. Uh, so usually you also have another cool mechanism, literally, to hold the ice in place once you've reach the point where you're ready to lift up the next segment. They have spring-loaded lever arms inside that inner barrel that think of it like little pincers that come in and hold that core in place. Okay. Because you want it to be really steady when you're lifting that drill up, you know, you're talking 40 meters or more up a borehole. You don't want to lose the grip on that ice core sample, because that would be bad. <laughs> so the the spring-loaded lever arms hold them and they are called something that I love, Core
1: Dogs. Mm. It's like it's like going to the county fair. You get yourself a or pretzel po- and a couple of Core Dogs. I like
0: to go to Palookaville to get my Core Dogs. <laughs>
1: The local establishment here in Atlanta. Now, there is another type of drill that I love. Yeah. I think this is excellent. I loved looking at the picture. I was looking at a picture of this before I read about what it was, and I was like, I don't understand how it cuts because <laughs> it just looked like a pipe with kind of a strange lip. It didn't have any teeth. Right. And then I read about it, and I was like, oh, I see. It doesn't it's cut. A thermal drill. Yeah. So it's using heat. Yeah. So imagine sort of a pipe yep. that on the end of the lip of the pipe has a heating element mm-hmm. and it gets hot, melts straight through the ice and just sinks on down there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, until you get to, again, to the end of the, the capacity of the drill and then you have to lift it back up again. So, yeah, yeah it's really I, I love that idea, the idea of, of, of let's just use heat to work our way. Th- I mean, come on, it's ice. Let's use heat to melt away down there. Yeah, that actually does seem like it would have some limitations though. And it does. In fact, you are uh you're more likely to use that when you're using ice that is above minus ten degrees Celsius, for example. You don't Mm. you you which is fourteen degrees Fahrenheit, by the way. You wouldn't use that in colder areas because the melt off, the water that you would be creating as the heating element melts the ice would likely start to refreeze and that would become a problem. So you are more likely to use it in uh, in quote unquote warmer situations It would still be really cold uh, and then if you were to encounter those colder situations you would use electromechanical drill and in fact there are plenty of ice core drilling uh, projects that that will switch out the drills based upon whatever the current conditions happen to be as they are drilling we got a little bit more show to go. Before we get to that, we're going to take one more quick break.
1: Now, I would imagine that once you get down to a certain depth, the whole enterprise sort of changes. I, I mean, once you're getting to thousands of feet down, right? You're going to start dealing with the ways that ice behaves, kind of like a plastic. Yeah. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah.
0: You got to remember this ice is under a lot of pressure. I mean, just from weight alone, it's under a ton of pressure. But there's also there are other elements there too. There's glacial flow, right? Mm-hmm. Glaciers move. They don't move very quickly. But there is this pressure from glacial flow where the glacier is uh, potentially moving in a specific direction, which means that's putting pressure on the borehole too. And if the pressure is too great, that borehole can close. And by close, we pretty much mean collapse in on itself. Yeah. Like closing sounds pretty gentle. It's not a gentle thing.
1: Well, whether it's gentle or not, it's a big problem for your research project.
0: Exactly. So uh, there are times where you will have – these these projects where they will start pumping liquid down the hole. And there's a couple different reasons for this. Some will pump antifreeze liquid down the hole in order to make sure that any melted runoff, for example, if you're using a thermal drill, doesn't refreeze. Yeah, But then you may need to put down a, a different type of liquid, another one that would be less likely to freeze in order to equalize the pressure from inside the hole, to what is outside the hole?
1: Yeah, I read somewhere that the drill fluid that they would normally use can be something like kerosene, like a petroleum-derived fluid, uh, and it just basically has to have the right freezing point. Yeah, and, and they want it to be of a certain thickness.
0: Right, right, because they have to. You know, if it's if it's too thin, then it's not going to create the pressure that they need in order to keep the hole stable. Yeah. And if the freezing point is too, is, is too high, then it's going to just end up mucking everything up anyway. So it is a delicate balance. There's one project in particular I wanted to talk about to kind of give an idea of what it's like to work on one of these. Uh, again, it all depends upon how deeply you need to go when you're retrieving the ice core sample. You know, how far back are you going to be looking? Uh, there's one called the West Antarctic Ice Sheet Divide Project, which is a recent effort by the United States in which an ice core that was 3,405 meters long, so 3.4 kilometers long, was retrieved over the course of six field seasons. Now, they defined a field season as approximately 40 days of drilling. Uh, the actual drilling took place six days a week, so uh, obviously more than, um, uh, it, you know. Since you're not drilling seven days a week, 40 days of drilling is you – know you got to divide that up properly. But mm-hmm. 24 hours a day, three shifts a, uh, for drilling per day with three uh, project workers per shift. So nine people working for six days a week, and drilling is going on 24 hours a day.
1: I'm sure that's not an easy job, but I would kind of like that job. I, Just to be able to say I, I drilled – Cores of ancient ice. Yeah, at one of my past jobs. But
0: you might you might have some interesting stories to tell about the 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 quirks of the two shift workers you shared all that time with, and whether or not you <laughs> ever want to see that person ever
1: again. Right. The, uh, t- the two a.m. to ten a.m. shift is wow. Kind of rough in Antarctica.
0: You could also just be like, I will never not hear the sound of ice being drilled. <laughs> it's just gonna go through my head through the rest of my days. Uh, but anyway yeah it's a it's a really serious endeavor, and it's uh very important scientific work and so because it's important and because this is something that you know once you once you have retrieved the ice core sample you've only just started, you have to make sure that you can store them
1: properly so that you have the chance to actually examine them later right so you've got these cylindrical segments of uh, you know essentially priceless scientific data right that are just in containers and they could melt yeah and it's (laughs) perishable yeah it's perishable there's something that's beautiful about this to me the the fleetingness of it how you know this is something that is could be millions of years old but it's frozen right and it could melt if the power goes off you know (laughs) now to be fair if you're getting them from greenland I think the
0: oldest we've looked at is 130,000. And in yeah. Arctica, it's more like 800,000. Okay. So not quite millions, but still well before human history was ever recorded or sure. potentially even possible to record. You know, we're talking way back. We're talking back when Cthulhu was running rampant.
1: Probably not, but at any rate, the... now would that be detectable from the ice? <laughs> would we see dissolved particulates like, of—I uh, don't know. Yeah, just like there's there's. What are the chemical constituents of the old ones? Right,
0: you could be like, well, there was a frozen sugar th- right right around this level, so we're pretty sure it was around this time. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, so we have we have to store these things obviously until they can be examined by various scientists. And a lot of the ice cores, when they are stored, like. There are a lot of different research facilities that want to have a chance to, to examine this stuff. So they have to go to a special facility to do that. One of those is the National Ice Core Laboratory, which stores more than 17,000 meters of ice. That's incredible. And its main archive freezer is 55,000 cubic feet in size. That's 1,557 cubic meters. And so incoming ice has to first reach a thermal equilibrium with the temperature inside the freezer, which is minus 36 degrees Celsius or minus 32.8 Fahrenheit. And the reason for that is obviously you don't want to, uh, start handling the ice before it's reached thermal equi- equilibrium for fear of damaging the sample, mm-hmm. right? So once it's reached that thermal equilibrium, that's, that only then can you actually unpack it and then, uh, label it and, and rack it, categorize yeah. it.
1: I've seen pictures of these storage facilities. It looks like kind of like a National Film Archive or something. It's got these silver cans and the shelves going to the ceiling. Though I do wonder if there's a temptation for people working in these places every now and then to get a little cheeky and make themselves a highball. (laughs) (laughs) Just just an ancient
0: on the rocks, right? right? Yeah, on the ancient rocks, I guess. Of course, uh, then
1: again, you may be unleashing microbes into your, into your body that you have no natural defenses against. Yeah,
0: that, that, yeah, I see that we're kind of, uh, starting to mix up, uh, movie genres too, because this is kind of, a Roland Emmerich, you know, kind of, a end of the world, okay, uh, so you know, derivative.
1: Right. You know, and now.
0: then, and then Judd Apatow, where you get like the kind of stoner comedy. Okay. So you get like the stoner character who's just trying to make a drink and then unleashes the terrible super flu. <laughs> Like this these this this particular bacteria or virus or whatever has been in suspended animation for hundreds of thousands of years and now has been unleashed on the planet. Oh no yeah there's money in this Joe I think we need to
1: develop it but okay. before that we have to finish this podcast. So yeah wait a second. okay so once they've got the ice yeah you have this priceless repository of ancient data. Yeah how do you analyze it and what can you learn? Well, the first thing you can do is look at it. I know that sounds silly. You are a, a man of many insights. Using, using your eyeballs.
0: So uh, the interesting thing about an ice core sample is you can actually see the passage of time just by looking closely at the ice core sample.
1: Yeah, you should look up an image of this if you're listening on a computer or device where you can have internet access. It's cool. It's got stripes.
0: Yeah, and those stripes represent summers and winters, right? So. Winters are darker because you usually have much greater snow accumulation during the winter. Mm-hmm. Summers are lighter because you have less uh, snow accumulation. So you get these dark bands separated by light bands, and together those represent a year's passage of time, right? Yeah. You've the, got the summer and winter there. And so you just start counting backwards. It's like rings on a tree.
1: Except you'd be counting vertical stripes rather than the concentric circles. Exactly. Yeah,
0: so... You count that backward and you can actually say, oh, well, this particular uh, year is such and such because it's so many far back from the surface. And then you can start or at least you can estimate like within a reasonable degree of certainty what year that represents. And in fact, uh, they have done tests. They being scientists have done tests to make sure that this is the case by Looking at various uh, layers, identifying what year that layer should represent, testing the chemical composition of that particular layer of the ice and comparing it to data that we have from other means. Other means. Like, and we're talking like around the 1950s, like looking at the 1950s. So counting back till you hit to 1950 on the ice core sample and then testing it to see if it actually matches the other records we have and they match. So it shows that this actually does work. Now, however, that being said, when you start going to deeper levels, it starts getting more and more difficult to differentiate.
1: Yeah, I think I was seeing various concerns about how factors in the physics of the glacier can change what happens to these levels. I mean, yeah. number one you just have that more pressure, but I think the glacier flow can also change how the levels are represented, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, if you if you think about it, like these glaciers don't necessarily all move as like one big solid unit. Keep in mind that this is, this is a, a, the solid form of a fluid, but it still has some fluid mechanics to it, right? It's not, not all of the glacier is necessarily moving as, uh, in concert with itself, right? So you could have sections of the glacier that are moving that could end up, uh, changing a little bit of what you would expect to find as you're counting back to a certain depth. And so it's one of those things where, uh, you know, you have to after at some point you have to start looking at alternative means of dating that particular part of the ice core sample. And that could involve doing something like performing some uh, geochemistry on it. So you look to see what materials are in that layer and how does that correspond with the records we have about our geological history. So uh, it's usually mass spectrometry that we use where we try and see what chemicals are represented within that layer and kind of map that to what else we know about our history. Yeah. Um there's also that layers of ash, so if we find layers of ash, then we know that this is uh uh, uh you know a a mark of a volcanic eruption and based upon our records we can kind of date it from that point.
1: Or it could be just another
0: emergence of hexus. Could be, could be likely a volcanic eruption, but could be uh, electrical conductivity, because again, depending on what the, what materials are dissolved within that ice, it's going to be either more or less conductive. And so by doing that, we can make determinations of what materials are in there and thus kind of get an idea of how, uh, where in the, the timeline that particular part of the ice core sample falls. Uh, numerical flow models, which help us correlate age to depth. This is what we were talking about just a second ago, Joe. The idea of the glacial flow and how that can can make things a little more complicated. Uh, having those n- numerical flow models, which essentially that's a simulation of what must have happened within a particular body of ice over a given amount of time, and by modeling it and trying to get that as accurate as possible, we can try and correlate. All right, at what depth would we consider like how how far down would we go before we hit? I don't know. Two hundred thousand years, for example. This mm-hmm. is a kind of. I'm just throwing that out there as as a off the top of my head example and also radiometric dating dating which is a not a way for nuclear physicists to you know hang out and find that special someone (laughs) they use tinder just like everybody else uh it's more about actually looking at um radioactive decay not every layer of ice has anything in it like that but some layers of ice do have trace amounts of uranium dust oh okay and that would might be a way that we could date certain types this is a pretty deep in the Antarctic ice, usually. Um, As for what we can learn, we can learn lots of stuff, right? I mean, like, it's really important information that tells us about the the way our world has
1: changed over huge expanses of time. Right. Well, I know one of the main things that scientists are looking at ice cores for these days is to help understand what past climate systems looked like Mm -hmm. and to help predict what changes will be brought about by the current climate change we're observing.
0: Right, right. And of course, you know, uh, you can't really make predictions without necessarily understanding what has happened in the past, right? You you need to have that model there so that you can have something to base your predictions upon. So one thing you can easily see, and by easily, I mean, I described looking at those layers and seeing the summer and winter. You could easily see the general precipitation trends year over year by the thickness of those layers, right? So if one summer-winter layer is very thin compared to the, the next one below it, you could say, well, there was a year where there was a, a relatively heavy amount of precipitation followed by a year where there was very light precipitation. Then you could go and start doing more studies to see, like, well, are there other elements inside this ice core that could indicate why that might have been the case. What what was going on in the atmosphere that would have made one year particularly heavy with precipitation and the following year light?
1: Oh, I see. So maybe you could just, for example, look at concentrations of different atmospheric chemicals in the layers preceding the layers that have more precipitation. Sure. So like, oh, wow, that's strange. There was more nitrogen in the atmosphere yeah. the the past three seasons before we had these heavy precipitation seasons.
0: Or it might be, uh, look, here- I are, just made that up. That's right. not a real result. Sure. And then you could also look and say, oh, look at the concentration of carbon dioxide, for example. Now, you've got to be a little careful with this, particularly with the Greenland examples, because- Carbon dioxide can get dissolved in water, and sometimes there there are also melting layers. Melting layers are where uh, you know the temperature had gotten high enough so that some snow had melted. The water can trickle down into the snowpack, and you get these kind of uh, bubble-free areas of ice. That's a melt layer, uh, which can still be have a lot of useful information in it. But it also means that sometimes water that has carbon dioxide dissolved in it can seep down into older layers and mm-hmm. thus change the, the composition of them, giving you a false positive that there was more carbon dioxide in a layer than there really
1: was. Fortunately, um, scientists are aware of this. Right. They know and, what to look for. And,
0: uh, and like I said, that's more prevalent in Greenland. In Antarctica, you don't tend to see that same issue. But, uh, uh you know, you can also look at things like, um, the, that chemical composition, which will tell you more about the concentration of greenhouse gases uh, in any given year. And you can look for trends, right? You can actually look and see, like, it may not be uh, this layer was thick and that layer was thin. It may be we're seeing a a gradual decrease in layers over a really long time, followed by uh, a a period where there were very, very thin layers for a long time and then very thick layers as another ice age started coming on. You could actually see these big trends. Cause that's really what we're talking about with climate, right? Climate isn't weather. We often, like, the people often will conflate
1: the two, right? Climate influences weather.
0: Right. And, and climate is, like, you know, a weather is this, is this localized, regional, temporal thing. Like, it's happening in a very small time span. You're talking like, uh, you know, wow, the weather's terrible today. Climate is long reaching. It can, it's a global thing. It's not, or at least a, a much larger regional thing. Um, and it, it is not, uh, it's not as mercurial, you could say, as weather would be. Cause weather can change dramatically day to day. Climate are these long trends.
1: Describing climate would be like describing Jonathan's personality. Describing weather would be like, can you believe what Jonathan said this morning?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well put. So uh, by looking at this, we can say, all right, during this period of time where we know there was a greater concentration of greenhouse gases because it was trapped in the ice, we have uh, we have uh, we've analyzed the ice. We know what the concentrations are. We can see from the following layers how that affected climate over a great span of time. So because our records don't stretch back that far, heck, our, our weather records don't stretch back far at all. We're talking like a century or so. And otherwise we're we're relying upon things like the recollections that people had written down in either letters or, or you know, just the, the general uh language used by people who were writing at the time, what the weather might have been like. This is a actual way for us to look back and say, Here's what the climate was 100,000 years ago, and here's what, here's how the climate changed over a 20,000-year span. I mean, it's a big-picture look at something that otherwise we would just be making wild guesses about, and that's really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, it's obviously incredibly useful. I, I have to say again how much, maybe it's just me, but anything that's that old gives me this very cool, mysterious feeling. I get a little teary about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's neat to know that there there exists a record where by applying careful scientific, a careful scientific approach to analyzing that material, we can draw very, very, uh uh, uh very interesting conclusions mm-hmm. about what the earth was like well before humans were walking around and being humanish. Hope you enjoyed that classic episode about ice core drilling. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me and let me know. The handle for the show on Twitter is HSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,